0: Humanists Take on the World Episode 6 The History of Humanism Welcome to another episode of Humanists Take on the World. I am Dustin and joining me is Lauren.
1: Hello! happy to be back to uh episode six part two <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right so this one's gonna be a shorter episode hopefully but yeah so and i'm
1: exhausted so
0: all right let's go ahead and get into the history of humanism so there's a couple ways of looking at this one is or when did humanism first show up
1: well like as a concept or like defined as humanism
0: yeah that, or when did the, tr- the, the ideas that gradually moved that way start? Okay. So, and then we will get, there is some criticism on that, where humanists are often like to claim the starts from way, way back. And then there are Christians who hate that, because those people weren't atheistic humanists, they were pagans and Christians, and why are you... Taking their stuff and misusing it like that.
1: (laughs) Because Christians have never done that. So, okay,
0: so where that starts, the Greek
1: philosophers
0: were among the first people, at least, that have been captured in writing. Actually did philosophical ideas on, you know, human well-being and the like. And democracy and all that kind of stuff. And then that helped inspire the Romans as they were developing their empire. And then the Dark Ages happened, and that was lost. That started getting looked at again in the 13th, 14th, and 15th century, mostly in Italy. Okay. The Italian Renaissance. Renaissance! That was the Renaissance, was they found all these old writings about these interesting philosophies and started doing studying of classical literature, which that was the Greek classics, Greek and Roman classics. Yeah. And that was studying the humanities, as opposed to scholastic study, which was just studying medieval theology. And Had really crappy book fairs. (laughs) (laughs) So it did prompt some, you know, for the most part, it didn't quickly start getting more schools, but it did spread around through some of the seminaries. Because at that point, effectively, every school was a seminary. It just existed to make clergy. (laughs) And one of the big drives of that early level of humanities study was, well, more people should be literate and educated. And some people even suggested should have a say in how the government and church are run. Mm. That if we had an educated populace, then we might be able to have you know, a more liberal society.
1: <laughs> right, because the general idea is that people are stupid and they need to be ruled over as such. Right.
0: When, you know, if your entire population, if, if say, realistically, with much of medieval Europe, the people in the royal court who were the, you know, the, the, the lords in the royal court and the king and princes might have been able to do some reading and writing, but probably not much. The term clerk... The person who takes writes down notes.
1: Right, it was all dictating.
0: uh, That word clerk is actually just a modification of the word cleric. Because through much of the Middle Ages, it was church clergy who were assigned to the royal court to work as the clerk. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Because it was basically... They were literate. It was basically only priests who knew how to read and write. Even though they mostly only knew how to read and write...
1: Dead languages?
0: In Latin. And okay, it it is quite. At that point, it was more literary Latin. And the distance between the literary Latin and the spoken Latin in Italy at the time um, would have actually been not a whole lot further separated than English is at present, with the difference between the spoken language and the written language. Okay. Because there's always a divergence there. Yeah. And the church always keeps. Whenever they can, they try to keep the written language as static as possible. So anyway, that did end up resulting though in humanism spreading through or the 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 humanist or humanities study studies spreading through the clergy and into the universities. And there were popes who were fans of the humanities. And most of the Protestant reformers were students of the humanities.
1: Right, that's the fun stuff to study. (laughs) Uh
0: So like Martin Luther, Wycliffe, uh, Calvin, Zwingli, and a bunch of others, they were all part of the humanities movement, which that is currently being referred to, it wasn't at the time, but. Uh, in the twentieth century, that started being referred to as classical humanism.
1: Oh, okay. And who came up? Do you know who?
0: No, I don't. I, I don't know who who that came
1: trend up. Trend made, made popular by. Uh,
0: mostly to distinguish it from the at the time the weird Unitarians that were calling themselves humanists.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: And how's that different from the you know
1: the previous episode? Uh, So the case, this was all sounding somewhat familiar. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So
0: then the, the interest in, in the humanities also included an interest in going back to the writings, to the actual written record and to actually examine them and debate them and do scholarly work with the stuff. And That ended up being a big part of why the Protestant Reformation happened. There were priests who were actually interested in reading the Bible (laughs) and debating with each other what it meant and not just blindly following tradition.
1: Yeah. It's good to have a pen pal.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, of course, that mindset did travel through the Protestant Reformation and into the Congregationalists and the Puritans and the Unitarians. And for the most part, humanist organizations have been formed from something that would be reasonably recognized as that country's version of, of Unitarianism, or it's a lot newer than that. Okay. So like the, the uh, Humanist UK, used to be the British Humanist Association, predates the American Humanist Association or its earlier version by a bit and it was kind of the similar vein as what happened in the US uh the US is kind of interesting because it's well very well documented and has gotten a lot of press attention over the years started with 1927 with unitarian professors and students at the University of Chicago which is a unitarian college and seminary uh Starting to move away from, you know, they, they were abandoning, they were m- much more willing to be outright vocal about not being believers in a god. Okay. Than most Unitarians were at that time. Even though there had been atheists in the Unitarian church for decades by that point.
1: Yeah, but they weren't and loud they, and proud. They were...
0: Not loud and proud. And so... They viewed it as at that point in time, the Unitarians had moved fully away from Christianity and it was time to move them away from theism and into the modern world as the beacon of reason and science and
1: progress
0: progress and all of that good stuff. So...
1: A.K.A. Liptards. <laughs> I believe is what some refer to that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so they launched the new humanist magazine which calling it the new humanist suggested suggests that they were referring to the reformers as being the old humanists okay or the founders of classical education as being the old humanists and that's not wouldn't have been too confusing for a bunch of academics because sometimes students of the humanities or humanities professors are referred to as humanists because they study humanities. Right. Similar to a biologist who studies biology. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a little bit of con- you know, ambiguity there sometimes. And uh, so, yeah, they went with the new humanist magazine. And the goal of that was to try to, to convince Unitarians to abandon traditional religion even more. Uh, you look at Unitarians, they have abandoned traditional religion. But not as much, or at least at that time, had not as much as they were hope- these guys were hoping they would. Around the same time, Charles Francis Potter founded the First Humanist Society of New York. He was a Baptist minister who became a Unitarian minister and then became a Humanist minister. Uh, his congregation included... John Dewey, Julian Huxley, and Albert Einstein.
1: Oh, okay. So, you know, yeah,
0: it it was actually a a thing. (laughs) Uh,
1: Name drop.
0: He wrote a book uh, that was Humanism, A New Religion, and his goal was for humanism to be a non-theistic religion that would be a new religion for a new age and a way to help humanity move forward. Okay. Uh, so that was the New York Humanists, while the Chicago Humanists were more just wanting to continue to work with the organization they were already in.
1: <laughs> right. Do you think they had epic prank battles? <laughs> a rivalry of sorts? In
0: 1933, uh, they, the leaders of the fledgling humanist movement uh, published the A Humanist Manifesto. There were 34 national leaders who worked with them to write that, including a philosopher-psychologist, who was John Dewey, uh, and a number of of Unitarian ministers. Like, when you look at the list of signatories, about half to two-thirds were Unitarian ministers. The rest were scientists, journalists, and lawyers. Yeah. Uh 2 years after that the humanist Fe- uh, fellowship became the humanist press association which published the new humanist and the humanist bulletin uh which was kind of funny with that is that kind of follows with the uh adventist path of <laughs> publish they were you know the adventist church didn't want to be an official church for quite a while so they had a publishing association and that was the closest thing they had to a church government. Yeah.
1: It's so weird. It was just
0: a publishing it's just association. It's a
1: weird way to think about it. Yeah. But it worked, I guess. And the,
0: the, the early humanists did that with, yeah, the, the closest thing to a national organization was the National Publishing Association, which at that point was still mostly being run by humanists, by, was still being run by Unitarian ministers. Uh, and apparently the Unitarian hierarchy didn't care, which is cool.
1: Like, have your little magazines Yeah, out of our way. Uh,
0: 1941, Curtis W. Reese and John H. Dietrich, who were both Unitarian ministers and humanists, uh, converted the Humanist Press Association to the American Humanist Association.
1: Drop the publishing.
0: Dropped the publishing and made it into, like, took it from being a publishing organization to a membership organization.
1: Okay. Okay. That makes sense.
0: And at that time, they dropped the goal of establishing anything that would look really like a religion. And they wanted it to be a a completely non-theistic and completely secular organization that would organize advocates and work for the mutual education of its members, uh, whether they are religious or not. Even though if you read the first humanist manifesto, uh, to agree with that manifesto, you were absolutely saying that religion is bad for the world and needs to be destroyed. <laughs> it was a little more softly in you know 1933 flowy language um and, and the the first uh, the, the the humanist manifesto one it, it's pretty cool uh, it, it's a short read it's a worthwhile read uh they promote democracy and free speech the elimination of poverty and class struggle and like There was definitely some early Marx influence in it. And uh, you know, scientific advances and you know really good stuff. Uh by the 1970s, they felt the need to do the Humanist Manifesto too, which is incredibly long. And the TLDR is they felt the need to distance themselves as much as possible from the Soviet Union and Communist China.
1: Oh, yeah. That makes sense. Um, You know, for that era. You don't want to get lumped in with commies and the... Uh,
0: In that one, they... Even though they were. (laughs) They came out, and, and they went the angle of authoritarianism is always bad. And there has not been a application of socialism that has been able to eradicate poverty yet so they were trying to be realistic that it may not be a possible goal Mm. uh they also were realistic or, or they also were much more explicit in the kind of equality they wanted to see in the world uh gender equality Access to contraceptives and abortion. Uh, full racial equality.
1: Right. It's kind of easy to just say, oh, yeah, I want equality for all. But when you get down to the nitty gritty, it falls apart.
0: <laughs> and it's like 15 pages long. Ugh. The first one is maybe two. <laughs> uh, now, that second humanist manifesto, they sent press releases to all of the major media outlets and the New York times ran it on the front page. I don't think they could have run the whole thing. No, no. but they ran it on the front of the New York times. Oh yeah. Uh, by that time, the, uh, there were a large number of, of the top journalists were members of the American humanist association. So not particularly surprising. Um, prior to that point though, uh, The AHA, uh, started getting involved in the 1940s, um, with Vashti McCollum's, uh, legal battles against her children's school, fighting against religious instruction in public schools. No. And that case went to the Supreme Court in 1948, uh, with a ruling in her favor, uh, she then became, in 1962, the first woman to be the American Humanist Association president. Cool. 1962. <laughs> Margaret Sanger was Humanist of the Year in 1957, and she was honored with that uh, for her activism for birth control and sex ed. And uh,
1: Can you use some more of that now?
0: That was around the time that the AHA actually started actively cha- uh, advocating for abortion rights. Uh, specifically in the 1960s, uh, they helped form the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice and NARL Pro-Choice America, which are both organizations that exist today that still advocate for safe and legal access to abortion uh the 1980s (laughs) of course with the uh, satanic panic humanists were frequently targeted and the organization has just continued to grow and do its thing yeah uh outside the u.s. there have been humanist associations who have done very similar uh humanist uk formerly the british humanist association uh has been actively working on almost all the exact same things for about the same amount of time. (laughs) Uh, The Netherlands has a humanist humanist association that was established in, uh, shortly after World War II. And one of their big pushes has been with humanist psychology. Oh. Which is, specifically a style in counseling that is focused on critical reasoning and using that to cope with trauma and irrational thoughts.
1: Okay, that's cool.
0: Yeah. Um and there is uh also of course an international uh organization for uh, the different humanist groups to to work together. Um now like, I, I started off with, humanists will often cite Plato as one of the, you know, Plato and Epicurus as some of the earliest humanist thinkers. Great, that sounds good. They were not humanists. Gives you credence. Uh, calling the Protestant reformers and the early founders of uh, liberal education humanists They were not humanists. It wouldn't be so, so in a lot of ways, the critics are right. That is co opting their legacies for something that they weren't aware of or would have supported. Right. On the other hand, it's justifiable to call them proto humanists.
1: Yeah. They were this, they were the beginning, you know philosophies that eventually evolved into what we now know of as humanism yeah but to call them humanists is a little you know
0: yeah and nobody really calls them humanists so the criticisms are also a bit
1: oh well there's that
0: uh but but you know it wouldn't be unfair to call to, to consider them as proto-humanists just like an astralopithecus is not a human it's a proto-human uh ideas have to start somewhere and some ideas end up taking thousands of years to get worked out yeah uh, it, it is amazing uh, how slow some of that progress
1: <laughs> has been uh, yeah well everybody knows that now the past couple of years has been a definite um, mm-hmm. struggle <laughs>
0: All right. Well, I've got a little update on something I talked about about a year ago. And that's my uh, cholesterol and blood pressure. Both are still high. Uh, And I started some blood pressure medication, so that should help out. And under the current guidelines, yeah, it's basically been high since my early 20s and was even borderline as a teenager. So (laughs) apparently it's, you know, something genetic or, you know, anatomical there with that. And with my cholesterol, You know, when that first one, you know, with it being high a year ago, we tried going off of the low-carb diet that we were doing and switching over to a flexitarian diet, which is mostly vegetarian with, you know, some seafood and a little bit of other meat here and there. And my cholesterol was even worse, and my A1C, while still normal, had gone up 20%. So my doctor had quite the talk with me about that encouraging. Basically, go back to what I was doing. That was working better. So going to be doing that and cleaning it up a bit. All that being said, one important thing to keep in mind, people's bodies, you know, everybody's bodies work a little bit different. There have been tons of studies done and there are new studies being done. And rather than, you know, try to take health advice from a podcast or a random website from a Google or DuckDuckGo search, yeah, talk to your doctor. (laughs) That's always the best approach, Uh, especially if they've got lab results and several years worth of lab results to look at and compare. Talking to your doctor, you can get some good stuff. And so please don't send in unsolicited medical advice. I am going to be following the advice of my doctor who has seen my test results. (laughs) But I thought I would give that little update. All right, we don't have any feedback. Ferky one two three did have a interview suggestion. Oh, I'll check out. Cool. A uh, former Russian Orthodox priest.
1: Oh, that be f- so, that would be.
0: Yeah, that, that would be an interesting one. So, Great. thank you, Ferky, for that. Um, there might have been a voicemail that came in. Something didn't work with my script. I don't know which part didn't. So, if you tried leaving us a voicemail, please let me know.
1: Yeah. <laughs> whoopsie
0: yeah i need to fix that if it's whichever way it's broken
1: (laughs) yeah maybe do something other than leave a voicemail
0: so yes if that was if you did try to leave one uh leave it again and then send me an email and i will specifically download it and then run the script and see what it does okay so yeah need some help with troubleshooting that uh uh we have an upgrading patron chuck Nice. Thank uh, you. We've had...
1: We need to keep that ball rolling.
0: Considering the crazy inflation and price fluctuations on everything, uh, I, am, I am happy with how many patrons have upgraded their patronage.
1: Yeah. Well, most people who uh, can do it, they can do it. Yeah. You know there' nobody's scraping by their last fifty cents at the end of the month to to pay a podcaster.
0: You better not be at least
1: but yeah, yeah, so we appreciate, but it's you know it is it is troublesome to have payment options change, yeah, we appreciate people who did that
0: uh but you can always support the show via Patreon on a monthly basis or on a one-time basis through PayPal, credit or debit card, Apple Pay, or Google Pay. And you can find all the links at htotw.com slash donate. Uh, You can contact us with the feedback form on the website at htotw.com slash contact. You can leave us a voice message at 208-996-8667. And send me an email if you do (laughs) as well for, for now. Uh, and uh, email is uh, contact at htotw.com uh, Lauren thank you
1: yeah I didn't just fall asleep <laughs> <laughs> sorry contact information kind of lulls me right off <laughs>
0: <laughs> and remember not all those who wander are lost